0: Does being a vegetarian help you avoid COVID infection?
1: How often do we see diagnostic errors in hospitalized patients who die or transfer to the ICU?
0: Looking at proteomics to look for multiple
1: cancers. And looking at social risk and how it affects dialysis facility performance.
0: That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, or I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: Rick, the one that you served up from JAMA about, hmm, what happens in these dialysis facilities is one that really speaks to my heart, having had multiple patients who have had circumstances that have been a little questionable surrounding dialysis. Are you okay with it if we start with that one?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's great, Elizabeth. And it's an attempt to try to improve performance in dialysis centers by using incentives. How effective is it? We know that individuals that are on Medicaid in low-income situations races, their outcome oftentimes at dialysis centers isn't quite as good. And things that we're trying to push people towards that is doing home dialysis. It's less likely that they're able to participate. But what CMS has tried to do was to compose a model that would reward facilities that have really good outcomes take money away from centers that have a poor outcome. They thought by doing this, by the way, that they could actually drive and improve outcomes. And by the way, they did that in about 30% of dialysis studies. What this study did was they looked to see how effective that was. They analyzed almost 126,000 patients at over 1,000 dialysis centers. They noticed that about 50% of them had no social risk. That is, they weren't African-American. They didn't live in a low-income area. And then about 22% had two or more of these risk factors. If you had two or more of these risk factors, you were much more likely to have money taken away from you than if you had none. In fact, if you had none, you were more likely to have an incentive provided. Well, that's just the opposite of what we're trying to do. What we want to do is we want to try to take those centers and actually contribute more money to get a better outcome. Now, in fairness, they tried to adjust these for individual patient-centered differences. But what they discovered is there are things that happen in the neighborhood that aren't captured by things like this. Education status, transportation, crime, access. And if you actually incorporated these things, they also added some predictive value. It may mean that we need to adjust our incentives, not only based upon the individual, but also neighborhood or societal things as well.
0: Tell me to construct that model. What would it look like to try to adjust for the neighborhood and for social factors that surround the center?
1: If you're in a neighborhood that has a high crime rate, doesn't have transportation, doesn't have healthy food, doesn't have a transport center nearby, it's not surprising that they're going to have a worse outcome. So we want to take those centers where they're going to and actually provide them additional monies or additional resources so they can improve the outcome. We don't want to take money away from them. We actually want to incentivize them. One of the indexes you can use is what's called an area deprivation index. It looks at an individual neighborhood to say, is that neighborhood deprived of things that would provide good applications? outcomes for the patient. We can use that to help adjust for these things.
0: Remember last week, we talked about this comprehensive approach to pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, pregnancy, and post-pregnancy with regard to early childhood outcomes. What this study says to me is that this comprehensive approach to health, which is of course one of those duh conclusions, (laughs) I'm really good at restating the obvious, is really the important thing here.
1: Yes. We're trying to make sure that all individuals have the same quality of care. Some individuals, some neighborhoods just need more attention to get there. This is a societal problem. If we don't address this, it costs us more as a society.
0: All right. So since we're talking about costs of health care, let's turn to the BMJ Nutrition Prevention and Health. And this is an examination that came from Brazil of vegetarian and plant-based diets and their association with COVID-19 infection. It's observational, 702 participants, where sociodemographic characteristics, dietary information, and COVID-19 outcomes were collected between March and July of 2022. When they took a closer look at these folks, their omnivorous group comprised 424 people, their plant-based group 278 They adjusted for all kinds of confounders, BMI, physical activity, pre-existing medical conditions, and found that the plant-based and vegetarian group had a 39% reduced incidence of COVID-19 infection compared with the omnivorous group. Gosh, this vegetarian and plant-based thing, this is something we should probably be looking at more closely from a societal and a policy perspective
1: we've talked before about the importance of diet in a number of disease entities in terms of reducing inflammation, reducing high blood pressure. And I'm going to put a little bit of a cautionary note to this. First of all, do I think that eating healthy is good? Yes, I do. At best, this is an association. You and I know that these individuals that eat healthy also have other healthy lifestyle behaviors. They're more likely to exercise. They have less weight. They have less comorbidities. I'm wondering whether it's not that the diet, but we just have a group of individuals that are more likely to wear a mask or more likely to be isolated or more likely to wash their hands or more likely to have other healthy lifestyle things that could account for it. There's no
0: question that the vegetarians had a lower BMI, a lower prevalence of overweight, obesity, and metabolic syndrome, and that they exercised more. That probably had some impact on how often they got infected with COVID-19. And then they also make the point about the relationship between immunity and foods, which is something that we seem to be seeing a lot more.
1: In the end, Elizabeth, whether we decide there's a causality or association, I think we're both in agreement that a healthy diet is, in fact, a healthy diet.
0: You got that right. Let's turn then to JAMA Internal Medicine, this issue of diagnostic
1: errors. We've known for well over a decade now that diagnostic errors play an important role in patients receiving care in the hospital. This particular study focused on two groups of individuals, those individuals who die in the hospital or those who are hospitalized and then are transferred to an intensive care unit. And they ask a very simple question is, how often do we see diagnostic errors in these individuals? To determine the presence and the underlying cause and actually the harms of diagnostic errors, they did a retrospective study of 29 different academic medical centers. They had two trained clinicians comb the charts to see whether there were any diagnostic errors or not, and if so, did they result in harm? After examining the records of about 2,400 patients, they discovered that about a fourth of these, 23%, had experienced a diagnostic error. These errors were judged to have contributed to harm in about 20%, 17.8%. When they look at the most common diagnostic errors, they fell in primarily two groups. Problems assessing the patient, either we didn't get the right diagnosis or we didn't establish it quickly enough, or secondly, problems with test ordering and interpretation. We didn't order the right test, we ordered the test and didn't look at it, or the test and didn't see how it fit in the entire picture at all. What this study doesn't tell us is what would have been the the outcome of these patients have been any different? Regardless, this is an area that we still need to address.
0: Yeah, this is, of course, emerged as a cause celeb in lots of arenas. And it's unclear to me exactly how we're going to get our arms around it, because they seem like fairly variable kinds of errors.
1: Yep. And you're right. There were six or seven different types of, di- I focused on the two that were most common. We're hopeful that artificial intelligence can help in some ways. Unfortunately, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it can actually make the problem worse if the data in and the way you're analyzing it isn't particularly helpful. Are there other things that we can do? We can educate the physician workforce better, make sure we're not anchoring on a specific diagnosis, not overburdening the physicians their healthcare providers. A number of different ways to address this.
0: Finally, let's turn to BMJ Oncology, and this is a look at a novel proteomics-based plasma test for early detection of multiple cancers in the general population. This is obviously an objective. Wouldn't it be great to be able to just draw blood and assess somebody for the presence of very early cancers? It's also helpful in terms of early detection, early treatment, and better outcomes, although that is not a solid line relationship. So this paper describes this novel proteome-based multi-cancer screening test. They had 440 participants healthy and diagnosed with 18 early-stage solid tumors. In this group, they measured more than 3,000 high abundance and low abundance proteins in each sample. Using a number of approaches, they identified a limited set of sex-specific proteins that could detect early-stage cancers and their tissue of origin with high accuracy. They were able to boil this down to 10 proteins that showed high accuracy for both males and females. In the males, 98%. In the females... 98% at stage one and specificity of 99%. Their panels were able to identify 93% of cancers among the males and 84% of the cancers among the females. They were able to identify more than 80% of cases, the tissue of origin of the cancer. A lot of pretty impressive results in people they already knew had cancer and this proteome-based screening test is promising and they say clearly should be followed up.
1: Elizabeth, I would agree. It does need follow-up and validation. They're all patients from the Ukraine, so they're all racially or ethnically very similar. The thing that was fascinating is they test over 3,000 proteins. They found that 10 specific proteins could identify the presence of cancer, but they were different in men than they were in women. The second thing that was fascinating is they tried to identify not was the cancer present, but where was it located? And they had to use over 150 different proteins to do that. It would be nice to take a blood test and to be able to screen. To be able to do that, it's gotta be very sensitive but very specific. And ultimately, as you mentioned, it needs to improve cancer outcome. The thought is if you can detect it early, you can treat it, get rid of it early and improve outcome. And that may be true in some cancers. It may not be true in others. The other thing I would say is that most of the cancers they detected weren't as early as they thought. They weren't stage one cancers. Most of them were stage two and stage three. And we know as cancers evolve, all their proteins change. So a lot of work to be done, but I'm glad that people are pursuing this.
0: Oh, absolutely. They cite something that I thought was really interesting. They say that nearly 60% of cancer-related deaths are due to cancers for which no screening test exists. I was really unaware of that particular statistic. And the other thing I would note about their test, not only the fact that men and women screen very differently, but that their most useful biomarkers for early stage cancers were those that were present in low concentrations, not the ones that were present in high concentrations, which is also a novel finding.
1: It is. And what it means is you've got to have very sensitive ways of looking for proteins that's at a very low level. I hope that in 20 or 30 years, we're able to crack this nut.
0: I'm hoping it's not going to be 20 or 30 years. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: And I'm Rick Lange. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.